You are listening to the Pragmatic Christian Podcast with your host, Hayden Bruce. Today I have Jeffrey Pugh on the podcast. He is an author, minister, theologian, and distinguished professor of religious studies. He's written on a variety of topics from science and faith to Dietrich Bonhoeffer and the end times. His latest book is The Homebrewed Christianity Guide to End Times, Theology After You've Been Left Behind. Um, I just wanted to take a moment to say that Jeffrey and I, um, we talk about his book on Dietrich Bonhoeffer, but we don't preemptively discuss um, who he was and why he was a big deal before we got like deep into what his book was about. So if you don't know who Dietrich Bonhoeffer is and you want to have better context for when that part of the podcast comes up, I would just do a quick Wikipedia search for Dietrich Bonhoeffer just so you can have a little bit of an introduction to who he is before we end up um, talking about um, Jeffrey's book. Other than that, thank you guys so much for continuing to listen. If you're enjoying the show so far, please consider supporting the show however you can. You can share the show with your friends, you can rate and review the show on iTunes, or for as little as a dollar a month, you can help us invest in some better equipment by donating to our Patreon account. No matter how you support us, I really appreciate um, you all listening and validating my belief that theology, science, philosophy, and religious experience are all worth discussing and learning more about. Now that that is all out of the way, allow me to introduce you all to the one and only Jeffrey Pugh. Um, I discovered you, um, through, you know, like many people through the homebrewed Christianity, uh, community. Um, and I, you know, I got your book on the end times and from there on, I was, you know, following, you know, your writing and stuff, but maybe we can start with, um, some of your background, um, because you are, how would you classify your, um, what you do? Are you a theologian, historian? Could you kind of go around in a couple different fields? I, I feel like. Oh, yeah, that's good. I mean, you know, uh, trained in theology, so uh, wrote my dissertation on Bart, um, books on Bart and Bonhoeffer, religion and science, which you might enjoy. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I've started in the last couple of years trying to move to books for more general readers, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, trained as a sort of theologian, philosoph- uh, philosophy of theology kind of thing, and um but now officially uh, retired. So, oh, congratulations! <laughs> so I'm not sure what I am right now. Uh, I'll have to w- worry about that. Um, I told somebody when I said one of the titles that I liked early on was Christian anarchist. Yeah. Um, but that I got that from um, wasn't Jacques L. Yule. It was from Bernhard Eller, I think, who wrote a book on Christian anarchy. But that was way back in the day. So. Are you going to write that now that you're retired? So, well, no, I've got a couple of books on the in the works and a book chapter that's due for a book on Bonhoeffer and political theology coming up. But oh, very nice. But um, but the other books are fiction and memoir. So oh, well, I'm uh, excited to see where that goes. Um, maybe we can um, back up. So, how did you become a theologian? Were you, um, you know, <laughs> where did you begin? Were you born into a Christian family, or did you become a Christian later? I was born in the South. Um, I'm a cracker. Um, I was raised in a 
I guess I want it for lack of a better word, middle, middle class environment. Um, but my relatives were not. Um, so I was raised uh, in a racist uh, South and not necessarily in a Christian home. Although my parents uh, sent us to church to make sure that we got some kind of moral foundation before we turned teenagers. Um, I, I can only think that's the reason. I mean, they, they seldom went. Um, so I didn't have any great training. That said, uh, my parents or my father was a United or was a Methodist. So the tradition that I had exposure to early on was a tradition that actually exposed me to social witness, uh, social gospel, social action, hmm. and tied that into how the gospel fit. But I left the church when I was about 17 and then went through, uh, I'm just going to go ahead and obliquely call it my dark period, um, but which had a lot to do with uh, the ingestion of hallucinogens and other uh, substances. Um so, and we're talking the late 60s now, early 70s. Okay. So, it was a time. Um, I'm that old. Um, and I'm just going to go ahead and say that when I was a sophomore in college, uh, I had this uh, born-again experience. And I thought at the moment that it was a unique once-in-a-lifetime thing, but I have suffered conversion continually yeah. since that moment. Um, so I would tend to go back and look at that very differently than I would uh, have looked at it when I was, uh, when I was 19, but 19, I came to an awareness of, um, God's acceptance of me and that in the space where I was in, that seemed like, uh, good news. So then I got wrapped up with, uh, the Pentecostals and then I got wrapped up with, uh, a new, new religious movement called the children of God. And uh, what what commentators today would call cult, but that is a, a, a stupid word used by stupid people um, who don't know anything about religion. So, um, and why do you, what are they defining as cult um, specifically regarding the children of God? And why do you um, why why do you think it's stupid for them to claim they are? I don't have any knowledge of the children of God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah no worries. So back in the late 60s, early 70s, America had what I'm going to go ahead and call the Great American Cult Scare. And uh, what you had was disaffected children running off to join the Hare Krishna or the Buddhist or mm -hmm. the, you know, the local temple. Or, and, you know, for me at that time, I ran off and joined a commune 10 miles away from the college that I had just dropped out of. And uh, because Jesus was coming back any minute, man, and I had right. to take, you know, and you had just become Pentecostal, so <laughs> you know, I, I had to take care of that shit. So, uh, so, uh, so the children of God was a high intensity, uh, apocalyptic uh, fueled um, group, uh, one of many among the landscape of America at the time. Hmm. It was breaking away from establishment religion, and um, so. I prefer the term dissenting religious movements because cult is normally seen as a pejorative term evocative of people with dark robes and hoods and knives in their hand. And, and people then can just go ahead and discount what it is the dissenting religious movement is dissenting from. 
And when you can just go ahead and discount uh, the critique, um, then you can maintain your, your status quo. Now, there are a lot of other scholars working in that area. That's not my specialty area, but I went into the children of God, and after about four months, I thought to myself, these people are batshit crazy, <laughs> um, and I'm going to go. Just a pause. Yep. So you were obviously convinced by something about them early on, and then to flip and say they're batshit crazy, what was it that attracted you and convinced you um, you know, early on, and then, you know, I guess what happened after that, you know, that convinced you otherwise? You know, that's a long story, and I, I don't want to take up too much of our time today, and, and always happy to come back if you want to go, if we don't get deep into the uh, weeds t tonight. Um, when I had this conversionary moment, I didn't know anything about Christianity. Mm. And these people, you know, we read about them in one of the local newspapers, and they had this commune 10 miles from our campus uh, out in South, Southwest Virginia. And so we just hopped in our car and went over to see them, and they knew everything. They had an answer for everything. Yeah. And we're like, holy shit, these people, they, they're radical, man. And, you know, we were of the more sort of radical type of student. Um, we were not the churchy types that, you know, and, and most of us who had been part of this uh, sort of conversionary moment uh, that I had, um, we just thought they just knew everything. Yeah. I was still a little suspicious because they seemed a little controlling. So I went and uh, lived in another commune for a while in upstate New York called the Love Inn, mm. uh, which back in the day, uh, I guess there's a guy by the name of Phil Keggy who plays guitar, um, and he lived there. Um, and it was a place for musicians and other sort of burned out hippie Jesus freak types to go and stay and outside of Ithaca. Mm. And um, they were great folks. And, you know, uh, so I, they gave me an example of what freedom looked like. Um, and then when I came back to uh, Virginia, I was a little disaffected with nowhere to live. I didn't want to go back home. So my friends had joined um, after we all dropped out of college. They had joined and I went and joined with them because I had nothing better to do. So I lived in... Um, uh, uh, Virginia, and then I traveled to because we were told to get out of the country because the apocalypse was coming any minute. Right, and we and we did elect Nixon. Um, so I'm going to say that yeah, uh, close. Um, that we had to get out of the country. So I went to Canada. Some of them went to Europe. Some of them went to South America. Um, I went to Canada, and I was living in Toronto. And in Canada. The group was far more controlling of your time, of your, you know, you, you couldn't go anywhere without one of them. You couldn't, they censored your mail. They, you know, they were high intensity and they were controlling and they exhibited all of those things that so concerned people about um, controlling other people's lives, everything, your mm -hmm. diet, you know. And uh, I just think at one point I looked around and I had, lived out on the streets a couple of uh, summers. And so I had a different way of understanding the world maybe than a lot of kids in that group. And at one point I just said, yeah, no, if this is it, I'm out. I don't want to have anything to do with this. These people are, these people are nuts. Yeah. 
So, so I, I hit it out, uh, in, uh, uh, snuck out at night and, uh, came on back to the, uh, commune in New York and then eventually made my way back to Virginia. Um, Stayed out of school, drove trucks, a couple of other legal problems came up that kind of prevented me from doing some things. And eventually I went back. Uh, I felt this strong call to teach college, which was a little weird at the time. But turned out that was not bad. <laughs> so after all of that, I mean, how are you processing your experience? What was the time frame but, you know, between when you began joining these communes and then by the time you were out officially, was it more than a year? Uh, no, it was under a year. Um, I had the conversionary moment in March of 72, um, joined children of God in May, um, left them in September, uh, went to New York to recover. Those folks were very helpful in saying, you know, yeah, you got to look at some things. But they, in their own way, were fairly rigorous evangelical Pentecostal types, charismatic mm-hmm. types. Then when I came back to Virginia, I joined a Glad Tidings Assembly of God Church and mm-hmm. all of the weird groups that were also meeting in, in Roanoke, Virginia at the time. So essentially, uh, I was a teenage fundamentalist. Sounds like a horror movie, right? <laughs> <You know? laughs> He had a Bible big enough to choke a mule. <laughs> well, that was, uh, I mean, it, the cult, or sorry, not cults, uh, but these communes and these different kinds of places aside, um, I was raised Pentecostal. Um, that's all I ever knew. I was in the Assemblies of God um, my whole life and then eventually went to a Bible college. Um, I didn't want to go to Bible college. I actually wanted to be a rock star. I was a drummer in a couple bands and sure. um, I, I hated education. And um, it's very strange to see where I ended up as far as like my personal interests go because now it's like I pretty much live in books. But, um, you know, I went to Bible college wanting to be a pastor and a missionary. Um, you know, an AG, you know, missionary and sure, you know, sure. things have, yeah. you know, since then changed. Um, but I'm interested in, you know, were, did it take you some time to process all that before you ended up going back to school and then following the course that you did? Or was it just a, I need something to do, you know, after, after this past year, I need, you know, I need to like just act on something. And that was an interest you had or yeah, you know, I came, I got drafted for Vietnam. Oh. Um, and I came back because I had filed my, I was going to file conscience objector status papers. Yeah. And um, when I came back to uh, write those back in my hometown, um, some things happened. Uh, this will be in the memoir if it ever gets published. <laughs> and um, when, when I was being examined at the physical uh, I was uh, classified 4F. Um, I started witnessing to the doctor, telling him about Jesus, and absolutely, totally sincere. And uh, so at one point, he asked me how many hallucinogens I'd done, and I said I lost count after 100. <laughs> and I think that's that's what did it. Um, <laughs> so you were so your religious beliefs <laughs> deemed you incapable of going something yeah you know and and, you know this is to say that since that time my closest friends have been vietnam vets Mm -hmm. and um 
the hell that they had to go through and the experiences that they've had mm. uh, give me nothing but uh, mad um, empathy for anybody that was put in that position. Yeah. Now, I was perfectly willing to do my five years. I didn't want to, but right. I felt like Jesus did not call me to to go kill another human being. Now, your listeners are probably maybe incensed by that, but that's just uh, out of the gate what I felt like this gospel taught. Mm-hmm. Um, so that said, you know, it was a couple of years before I went back to college. I mean, you know, I came back, I was drafted. Uh, I got into a little bit more of legal problems. Uh, I was convicted of a felony then, you know, so, you know, it was a kind of a rocky road there. Um, got married and had a daughter. And then uh, when I was driving trucks for a living, and then one day I went past the college that I had dropped out of, told never to come back or I'd be arrested for trespassing. And and they, um, they said, uh, uh, or there was this kind of this thing inside of me that said, you, you need to teach college. And I didn't do it because I was inspired by college teachers. I I felt like I could be the teacher that I never had. Mm. So, so that said, you know, it was a years long process before I got to the point where I went back. And then when I went back, I was still insufferably evangelical fundamentalist. I mean, <laughs> you know, I, I was still just, uh, I, I don't know any other way of saying it, but it was in college that my eyes started getting open to some, yeah. Some things that I did not understand about the world. So in one of my classes, the teacher the, who was the chaplain of the school brought in a former Methodist missionary in Brazil, Fred Morris, who had, um, had been taken by the secret police and uh, tortured, wow. American citizen tortured. He had been working with Dom Helder Carrera um, uh, down in... Uh, down in Brazil and with uh, workers' rights. So they took him and they tortured him, and he was telling us about this. And all of a sudden, that easy little boxed-in faith that I had just exploded. Yeah. Um, because then all he started talking about the necessity of the bitter here and now and not the sweet by and by. Yeah. And that became a moment that I could not put away i could not deflect it 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 and it became a call for me to learn more Hmm. so i started reading um gustavo gutierrez and jose maguez benino and the boff brothers and and uh, liberation theologians to try to figure out what was going on and i would say that that probably started my movement uh, a little bit away from the because it, the Pentecostal community and the other charismatic communities where I was at, it was all pretty much right wing politics. Yeah. And and it was all authoritarianism, which is one of the things that scares me about our particular historical moment now. Yeah. And um, it was either get in line or get out. And, and we we only have one way of being in the world. And if you can't conform to that way. Then, and so I'd raise these questions, and I would be told that my education was ruining my faith. <laughs> um, so at that point, I just said, well, I don't know what to do with that. 
so I went back to the Methodist church. Um, I left it because it was so full of hypocrites, and I came back because I felt like there was room for one more. <laughs> um, so you go back to college, and um, you know you're exploring these different ways of thinking, these different authors. If do you think you could formulate um, what were the specific, you know, couple of questions that you were looking for answers to. I know for me, um, <laughs> you know, I had a kind of just a reality check for me. I actually, you know, podcasts actually were a big part of my own deconstruction because I started listening to these podcasts with, you know, before I would only listen to preachers and, you know, pastors yeah. and stuff. And then I started listening to these, you know, comedians. I had just gone through a bad breakup and I just needed something to lift me up. And I started listening to these comedians talking to other comedians um, who just run the gamut of, you know, atheist, Christian, uh, Buddhist, Hindu, like all these different backgrounds. Um, and then hearing about their lives, hearing about their concerns, and then, you know, realizing, hey, these people who, you know, don't know Jesus the way I do, um, they sound more like people that care about others. They sound more loving. They sound more right. like people, you know, they yeah. sound more. Jesus than, you know, I do on my best day. And so that started to open up my eyes and then just reality kind of like your situation, but just reality just started pouring in, um, all around me. And I, I just couldn't stop. I couldn't unsee the things I was seeing. And then eventually, you know, my main questions was, okay, well, how do I make sense of this? And then is there meaning, uh, what, you know, what if it's just lights out after we die? And so I feel like for many people that those are the questions that people, you know, are, are asking when they're going through these kind of, you know, questions, or maybe that's just me, but what were some of the questions that you were specifically asking, looking for answers to, um, during this, you know, process? Yeah, I guess, you know, so one of the things I was looking at was what is the Bible? Yeah. Because that functions as a kind of an authority structure for how people construct their world, construct their epistemologies, construct their faith, Right. And um, in college, when I went back, I started taking, you know, a lot of classes. And I thought I was going to get a Ph.D. in New Testament. Mm. So when I went to seminary at Wesley in Washington, D.C., I, I was I was doing the Greek and the Hebrew. And, you know, I thought, yeah, I was going to get that Ph.D. Testament. I was going to be the next uh, Josh McDowell, man. I was going to yeah. be evidence demands a verdict 18. Woo! <laughs> But sometime over that course of that, right, the 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 Bible becomes something else than you right. thought it was, you know, as a fundamentalist. Um, so, okay, I got to give up inerrancy now because that's not, and then I've got to give up this. And I, okay, now what do I do with inspiration? Oh, I've got to look at inspiration entirely differently. So it's not that I don't love the text. The text is great. The text challenges me I, you know when i was reading bart's commentary on the romans you know part of me kind of loved it because it was just so incandescently confrontational hmm. about the way that we construct god in our image yeah. and but what i had not yet come to grips with was the fact that the bible itself is a construction of god right um that human beings in their context, in their time, in their space, enveloped within traditions, are trying to come to grips with. Mm -hmm. And um, now that's, for a lot of people, that's like, oh, but that ruins the authority of the text. 
No, if if you sort of if you need a a foundation that is unassailable, then yes, the Bible is not the place for you to go um, because it is wholly assailable um, and it bears witness to the word. Uh, whereas a lot of people want to kind of put it on a pedestal and say it is the word, right? Right. Um, so I'm I'm kind of. I'm, I'm speaking in relatively simple terms here um, because I don't want to get too deep into the weeds or anything. But that said, that was one of the big problematics that I had was, yeah. you know, so what? So if my experience relates somehow to what I was reading in this text, you know, if this moment that I had came from reading the Gospel of John, then what do I do when later on in my studies I see that the Gospel of John is one of the favorite texts of Nazi Christians. Right. Because it's, you know, the Jews did this, and the, I mean, so the anti-Semitism, the anti-Jewishness of other Jews, um, you know, that, that I just started having to struggle with a lot of things. And, and one of the things that, uh, and maybe this can take us into another sort of part of the conversation, is is what do I do with this? The fact that I had been duped by a heavily apocalyptic narrative, right? Um, duped to the point where I believed it so much I dropped out of college. Yeah, um, when I was number forty two in the draft that year, which was not a strategic move. Hmm. Um, I I do want to talk about your end times book, but before we even do that, because I think some of the themes might um, enter, you know, what's the word <laughs> intertwine into each other. Um, I know that, you, you know, you wrote a book on Bonhoeffer and um, I feel like Bonhoeffer went through some um, similar things himself about, um, you know, how do we relate to these stories um, when reality seems to cave in around you. Could you talk about your book on Bonhoeffer? Um, you know, first of all, Bonhoeffer is, you know, I've heard you say and many others that Bonhoeffer is kind of a Rorschach test, uh, on the people that are talking about him. Um, it, it's funny that that seems to be a theme in your last few books because the revelations is kind of a Rorschach test as well. But, um, where did your interest in Bonhoeffer um, begin? Yeah, let me let me just go ahead and say uh, real quick about the Rorschach test. Um, one of the things that really I was confronted with early on was the notion that we project onto God, for lack of a better word right now, we project a lot of stuff onto God that belongs to us. Yeah. So we're continually creating God in our image. Mm -hmm. um, God is a white, cis, heteronormative, blue-eyed male. Um, you know, everybody does this. Uh, yeah. it, it, you know, every human being suffers from the idea of projection. So when I talk about Rorschach tests, I'm not meaning to leave myself out of that. Yeah. Um, but then you try to get to uh, a reading that does somebody justice mm. so that if they were there talking to you and you said, here's the way I understand you and your argument, they could say, 
I, that I understand, I see myself in that argument. Yeah, I think that's that's a kind of a, a, a gracious uh, intellectual hospitality that we should give one another. Yeah. So, um, so I'm I'm as prone to that kind of projection um, as anybody else. Mm-hmm. Um, so that said, uh, you probably can find this in my in my book on Bonhoeffer. But there are different ways of approaching your subjects. There's a exegetical way of what did they say, you know, going into the German, looking at all the words, exactly the way that things are translated. And then there's a hermeneutical approach that says, what does this say now? Um, is there anything here for us today? Mm-hmm. And um, I had heard Bonhoeffer first uh, from that chaplain I was telling you about that brought the missionary that told us about torture. Yeah, and uh, he had he had been influenced by letters and papers from prison. Um, but then when I was doing my dissertation on Bart, Bonhoeffer works into that picture, right? Because he yeah. he comes to study with Bart and sort of, you know, then they had that that relationship of theirs. Um, and so Bonhoeffer sort of entered in, onto my radar screen in a more scholarly way. And then after I'd finished with Bart and had taken my first teaching position, finished my dissertation, um, I turned to reading more and more from, from Bonhoeffer. And now probably spend far more time on Bonhoeffer than I do on Bart. Both of those people impressed me at the time because of all of the people that were deceived by the Nazis, they weren't. Hmm. Um, and, and at the beginning of this story, I thought, Oh, there's these great heroes, the confessing church. And, right. you know, and then the more I studied and the more I, I dove into it, I realized that they were not so heroic. Um, and that that story is far more complicated than good guys and bad guys it's a story of the entirety of the Christian tradition being co-opted yeah. by the state um, to the point where they become absolutely ineffective in offering any resistance whatsoever to Hitler. Hmm. So one, of, so that's one of the reasons that I sort of I, I found that initial attraction. Now, the more I went in, you know, the more critically reflective you become on your subject and stuff. Um, yeah, the book Religionless Christianity was you know when when you first come uh come in contact with Bonhoeffer it's all weird right yeah what is religionless christianity what is a world come of age what is suffering god what is the the powerlessness of god what what do all these things mean yeah and if you still have that sort of <clears throat> image of the sort of classical theist notion of god in your mind omnipotence omniscient you know et cetera et cetera, et cetera so on, then you come to this and it's like, I don't understand what I'm reading. Yeah. But then as you sort of move into it, then you, you see that there's a person here like yourself who's questioning the very foundations of Christianity. Um, and, and, you know, is, is the expression of, is the cultural expression of Christianity too far gone to be redeemed by anything. Yeah. Um, have we made alliances with the political order to the extent that we have nothing to say to it other than to either ape it or justify it? 
And so our religion becomes a legitimation mm-hmm. of the social order, of the political order that we live in. And, and we take things that are rooted in this world and we, and we lift them up to a place of transcendence where they become unassailable to critique. Yeah. Now, Bonhoeffer is sort of tilling that field, so to speak. He's, he's plowing that field and he's coming out with, uh, you know, everything that we think about God, in fact, may actually be wrong. Yeah. That God is not about power, that God is not about, you know, um, uh, sovereignty even, you know, but that God is about suffering and, and that that is the very heart um, of, of, the, of the life of God. And I, I think that, so one of the things about Bonhoeffer that really struck me is that at some point in my life, when I started traveling around all over the world to other countries and saw the enormous amount of suffering that I'd also experienced here in this country, I had to come to grips with how does my theology incorporate the, the suffering of the world. Hmm. And, um, you know, that's not hard. I was looking at uh, some of the stuff that one of your guests, Vance. Vance Morgan. Uh, had talked about. And um, I think we may be in agreement that Annie Dillard may be America's greatest theologian. <laughs> um, I was reading one of his pieces. But, but my questions became her questions, and her questions were already anticipated by Bonhoeffer. What do we do if God doesn't make any sense in a world come of age? Right. If we live in a world where human beings arrange their affairs quite well without any recourse to God, then what does God mean in a world like that? Yeah. Because before we had God to kind of cover our bets, but now we don't need it. Mm. So there's this great story about a, a uh, it comes out of a book called Religion and the Decline of Magic by Keith Thomas. And he, and he tells this story about a church parish in England that uh, a researcher had gone and had looked at all of the, the records, the baptismal records, attendance, things like this. And there seemed to be a correlation from the moment when insurance was introduced to this parish to the drop-off in church attendance. So once you had insurance to cover your bets, you didn't need God anymore. Mm. That's the world come of age. That's, yeah. the, that's the world that doesn't need because it's figured out how to arrange itself in such a way that it buffers uh, the human subject from the realities of nature and misfortune. Mm. So there's sort of an issue of, is God redundant now in a world come of age um, or irrelevant now, you know, that we have come to this place um, in our culture and our technology and our understanding in our, you know, morality. Um, but I think, I mean, there is something about, um, you know, looking at history and even at the world around us where you kind of get a feeling that, you know, like, Coalette and Ecclesiastes talks about, you know, it's all everything just cycles back, you know, do we ever really grow up? Um, so where did, um, where did Bonhoeffer land on that question? Um, was God redundant or, you know, how do we relate to the concept of God in a world come of age? Um, and then also, uh, I, I'm interested in, in how, in how Bonhoeffer's questions and answers to that question relate to, um, 
the you know what's becoming more and more of a popular understanding of Bonhoeffer of this um, death of God theology um, and this whole you know radical theology. Bonhoeffer is a very big um, name you know within that movement, and um, you know maybe you can just riff on those things because I I want to understand more. Oh sure, well yeah, the death of God is a thing that took place when I was a kid, right? I mean, there's a Time magazine covers, God dead. It was black and red, you know. Eh. <laughs> um, and just going to go ahead and say that probably a lot of the early readings of Bonhoeffer on this, as they're done through people like Paul Van Buren, um, Thomas Altizer, uh, others, um, maybe not in, in necessarily an accurate reading of um of Bonhoeffer, okay. but 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 let's say this about how radical theology and other theologies now are sort of thinking about and talking about people like Pete Rollins, um, you know, are sort of stirred by the 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 I think I think fascinating fragments um, that we have in letters and papers from prison, yeah, and and I think what Bonhoeffer sees very clearly is the massive deconstruction that has to take place. Yeah, um, I think he understands that. And he says at one point, you know, what if everything that we have believed is just cultural conditioning, is just the sort of construction that culture and other things put around it, not related to a concept of revelation or inspiration or anything like this. But 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 this is what we did. And I think um, for me, at least where Bonhoeffer finally comes down on is. Yeah, but here's the thing. Jesus uh, seems to be the space where the, 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 the theory becomes real or the theology be, excuse me, becomes real or the life of God becomes concrete. Hmm. Um, he never gives up Christology uh, in this way. So for him, Jesus is the space where we see the suffering of God um, so it's not just a theory or a theological idea, but it's a kind of a, it's a narrated story about an actuality um, that people responded to. And, and so he says, everything that we expect or we anticipate about God is to be found in Christ. Hmm. Um, and omnipotence, and that is not the transcendence of God, the transcendence of God is becoming the brother to your sister or the sister to your brother beside you. If you do not see the life of God in that person, um, in the imminence of the world, uh, then don't even talk about transcendence because your transcendence is just bullshit. Right. Um, And so religionless Christianity allows us to sort of take the tools of deconstruction in a certain sense and say, okay, so I can understand all of these ways, all of these ideas, all of these images, all of the doctrine through the years that we have come to internalize and embrace and accept. And I can see that as ways that we have struggled to talk about God. It is not God, God's self. Hmm. Now, the death of God it doesn't mean anything other than it's the death of our images. Right. Um, and the death even maybe of the concretization 
of those metaphors and images into the reality of the thing. The thing itself, as Bart said, is like a bird in flight. It will always be elusive to us. Mm. We will never be able to capture it. Yeah. So, so in my old years here, I've become more apophatic. Mm-hmm. Um, or as Annie Dillard said in her book, For the Time Being, I, I don't know beans about God. Um, but what I do know is that there is, in time and space, these stories, these, these um, images uh, that we have of a God willing to enter into human suffering to the point of uh, embodiment. And that embodiment for me is, is, is the transcendence of the divine. I think it was for Bonhoeffer. Mm. And Bonhoeffer keeps challenging me over and over again. I'm not sure that Bonhoeffer ever got to the point where he was willing to accept the fact that the entirety of Christianity itself was a cultural construct, mm. right? Um, but he, he comes close, and then there's this wonderful uh, letter um, right toward the end, which he talks about a book that he hopes to write. Um, you know, and the book he hopes to write is uh, addressing the massive failure of Christianity uh, in, at Hitler. Mm. And then... Um, not just that, but how do we how do we recover from that? So he was willing to sell all of the churches, you know, meet in small groups, you know, radical uh, a radical realignment of what church looked like. Yeah, to not tie it to the pretensions of imperial power, mm-hmm. to not tie it, uh, you know, to the um, to the to sort of the. Uh, aggrandizement of the state mm. and and given the fact that he's living in a situation where there's a state church this would mean you know a, a massive reorientation of what christianity looked like he never got to write that book um which is you know uh, tragic because it it might have been far different um so people that try to use bonhoeffer to justify or legitimate the state and the power of the state over and against human beings, I think is a vast misreading of, of what Bonhoeffer is doing. Yeah. But, but I'm, I'm saying that also with the, uh, the sort of uh, caveat, my projection may be a part of that interpretation as well. That's the thing. We can't be sure of anything. Right. So faith in some senses is moving ahead in the world um, just in in the sort of assurance that if you're acting in good faith, um, you you will be corrected at some point. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think that it's important, you know, also for those who are listening who don't know um, much about Bonhoeffer. He was writing those letters from prison after being, you know, contained in, um, you know, in in Hitler's Germany um, or, you know, in a, can you tell a little bit more about his situation and um, kind of the context of those letters specifically um, and what, you know, might have brought him to the kind of things that he was writing about in prison, the kind of reality that he was, you know, that was caving in on him when he was, you know, coming up with those things. Well, he is, he is seeing um, the, the end of life as he knew it with the regime. Um, so he's here in America. He comes to America uh, early in the 30s. He goes back in 1939. 
excuse me, he goes back to Germany after his uh, years at Union. He comes back to America to escape Hitler, and he gets here, and he's not here just very, the briefest of moments, literally hours, realizes he's made a mistake and he has to go back. Mm -hmm. um, when he goes back, um, he's been a, the, the head of the sort of seminary in exile that they had at Finkenwalde, and so he's, he's a known figure in the country. Um, and when he goes back, there's no place for him, really. The, the confessing church has collapsed. All of the resistance to Hitler in the church pretty much has collapsed, other than a few individuals. There's no real institutional effective resistance uh, mm -hmm. at that point. And um, so Bonhoeffer actually enters uh, working with uh, military intelligence, ABBA, and slowly but surely uh the sort of uh secret police uncover uh things here and there and then um bonhoeffer is uh kind of tied to a conspiracy mm. um, to assassinate hitler so he's imprisoned and and as he's in prison uh the von stauffenberg uh, attempt, the famous one that the Tom Cruise movie, I can't right. remember the name of it, was made. and Like Valkyrie or something? Yeah, that's um, it. That's it. That's it. Um, you know, that happens. And so Bonhoeffer realizes that that's, you know, sort of the game is up. But what happens is he's sitting there as he's reading voluminously, I mean, reading intensely about the Enlightenment. I mean, yeah. of course, you know, we're talking about somebody whose educational level was far beyond anything you or I could think about, mm -hmm. um, and, you know, just a kind of a Germanic education and, and the thinkers. And so he's reading about, uh, the enlightenment. He's reading critiques of the enlightenment. He's reading, um, Wilhelm Diltas sort of, uh, treatment of, of these themes and, um, uh, so many other texts. And he's starting to come to grips with what the, Western traditions uh, have constructed and built and how Christianity is tied into those. And at some point, I think he just realizes that all of that has led, you know, all of the, the most sophisticated education, the most sophisticated uh, uh, learned people uh, of the world are now sitting in the midst of a, of a moment where Hitler is able to achieve power right. by, by appealing to the, the worst instincts in humans. And, um, and Bonhoeffer says, you know, there's a bankruptcy to, to this, you know, in the end, all of this really didn't help. Yeah. Um, you know, which is kind of curious. And so, as he's coming to grips with not just the collapse of the church, but the collapse of, Western society, uh, as he had known it, um, he's he's trying to he's struggling he's wrestling with all these things and and part of that wrestling is what is who is Jesus for us today? Yeah, um, are we of any use? Um, who am I? You know, these are the questions that he's the very existential questions that he's asking himself, mm -hmm. um, and and writes down and gives those to Everhard Bethke, who later on sort of gives us the fragments. Um, so these these things are um, first and foremost in Bonhoeffer's mind because he's watching the collapse of his of his country. Yeah. 
Um, some people would, you know, look at his situation. He's in prison. He ends up, you know, dying in prison and saying, well, that's why he was asking the questions he was asking. That's why he was saying the things he was asking or saying, um, why do you think that that's, you know, first of all, not fair. And then, um, can you also tell us, um, you know, what was the thesis of your book? I know that it was, um, you know, how does his work, his life and what he had to say apply to our situation today? Um, but perhaps you could comment on those two things. It is fair, actually. Um, what I just said about projection, you know, these these writings are a kind of uh, portrait of where Bonhoeffer is. Right. You know? So the fact that he's sitting in prison and he's going to write about what he's experienced, I think, is part of the projective task um, that we all do. That said, then you have to read him and ask, where does he seem to get it right? Yeah. If he is saying that the entire tradition of God in the Western world, as we have known it, is essentially wrong, or has placed the wrong emphasis, um, when Bonhoeffer centers that on suffering— and says that we know God in the suffering of the world, um, then I think the space opens up for a reconsideration of what God's power looks like, what our responsibility to the world is, um, and the space where God makes God's self known. And and the powerlessness of God is not a theme that many people latch on to. Because as you know, in your time in the Pentecostals, one of the reasons that I left was because they were far more interested in power yeah. than they were in suffering. Mm-hmm. Um, and even at that you know, young age of 21 or whenever, I finally just said, no, I can't do this anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, even at that point, I, I realized that the seeking of power and, you know, and that sounds judgmental because in the community that I was in, those people didn't have any other power. Yeah. They had no social power. They were they were looked upon as the outcast, right? Yeah. So they were the people that Jesus would place himself with. But then there was that other side that when you know when Jesus comes, he's gonna destroy our enemies, you know, and we'll be back on top. And mm-hmm. you know, and there's just some people not gonna be happy in heaven unless they know there's some people in hell. Yeah. And um and so there's that that kind of moment that uh, Bonhoeffer brings us to that causes us to reconsider what our relationship to power really is, mm. and and what is it that we're actually really worshiping? Yeah. And look, nobody wants to worship a, a helpless hand tied behind the back. God, right? You know that's 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 weak. You know. Well, I think that ties nicely into um, the next book that you wrote, or I don't know if it's the next one, but the latest book that you wrote, The End Times, um, that you wrote for the homebrewed um, people, um, that theme of powerlessness, that theme of, um, you know, I can I can just imagine a, you know, someone very apocalyptically minded reading, you know, your book, reading these themes about power and empire and what are Christianity is connected to, and then just saying, no, I'm going to double down. Um, can you talk a little bit about, um, 
rapture culture um, and, you know, what your latest book was about. Yeah, so, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's in the Homebrew Christianity series, and mine was on the end times, theology after you've been left behind. When Tripp approached me about the book, he was giving me the, Tripp and Tony, and they were giving me the sort of, so, you know, we're going to do this series, it's going to have about 10 things in it, and Tripp's going to do Jesus. So, you know, okay, well, Tripp wrapped up the fun one. So what what <laughs> else do you got? You know, and they said, well, ecclesiology. I'm like, ah, you know, Holy Spirit. Ah, you know, and then they said, the end times. And I said, that's my baby. Yeah. Be- because I had some experience with right. rapture culture. I lived in rapture culture for a long time. It, it, it influenced some of the decisions that I made early on and... It took a, a few years to totally um, extricate myself from the pull that it had on my imagination. So this book, uh, I wrote this book for people that may be like I was mm-hmm. um, and who actually believe that the ideas that they carry around in their head are actually accurate interpretations of biblical text. Right. When those biblical texts don't say a damn thing about what they believe, what they're doing is they're re- they're reading the text from the position of dispensationalist theology, which was created out of thin air <laughs> by John Nelson Darby of the Plymouth Brethren, um, transported into American evangelicalism by Bible conferences all over uh, the East Coast and the Midwest and up in Michigan even. Yep. And uh, and then finally, the Schofield Reference Bible, who I've talked to evangelicals, they believe the, that the, the, the liner notes of that are as inspired as the Bible is. Right. So, so there's this entire, I, I want to say, and let me just go ahead and piss people off. There are like 35 million people walking around voting, driving cars, procreating, who actually, I think, walk around with a sense of false consciousness. Yeah. And it's a false consciousness based on fear. Mm. Um, You know, and and I think I would rather have the fear of of getting it. How do I want to say this? I'm not afraid to get it wrong. Yeah. But I'm pretty sure they don't have it right. Um, so when I, I said that earlier about the Bible as sort of an epistemological tool, that's the only place you can get this. Yeah. The Bible is the only source that you have mm-hmm. for how you construct an eschatology. Yeah. Um, and if you know nothing about what the church taught over centuries, then you can get really sucked into somebody that comes along and says, I've got all the answers. Mm -hmm. I mean, right after this conversionary moment I had in 1972, I had somebody put a copy of the late great planet Earth by Hal Lindsey into my hands. Yeah. And and I was reading, I was going, God, nobody ever told me this. How how could I have missed this? And I was reading it thinking, it sounds so plausible, Russia, Magog, and Israel. And of course, the the seven-day war was God's, providence and not Israeli skill and you know and and I I just I thought it was all true mm-hmm. and um you know how Lindsay said well it's you know it's going to happen before 1988 and and it was just bullshit the whole thing was bullshit still bullshit 
Um, but millions of people buy these left behind books. Millions of people believe this. Yeah. And they live their entire lives around the idea that this is a thing. You- I, it, look, if Jesus were to come back tomorrow, I'm happy to be proven wrong. Yeah. But I'm not going to sit around huddled up, worried about the one world government, the Antichrist, um, and, and the false prophet. And whether or not my credit card is a a, a variation of six six six, right? You know, life's too short for that. Okay, go ahead. Can, uh, can you just give a gist of what that dispensationalism um, looks like? Like, what is the um, set of ideas that these people hold? So, John Nelson Darby, um, he had a moment, a conversionary moment of his own. And uh, he joined the Plymouth Brethren, and and he developed this scheme uh, of interpretation. And the scheme of interpretation was basically oriented around the fact that in in eight there there were certain ages, there were certain periods of time, dispensations, the time of Noah, the time of the you know the flood, the the Abrahamic covenant. You know there were there were these certain times. Um, that God was at work doing God's thing. And so by breaking up the sort of world into these segments of time, uh, John Nelson Darby also sort of imposed a, a kind of a grid of interpretation on books like Daniel and Revelation, yeah. um, where he found sort of the same numbers and things like this. He found these numbers, and then he uses these numbers to create this idea and and to create things that are not there. Antichrist is nowhere in Daniel. What? But but John John Nelson Darby puts him in there. Um, so so there's all these creations of ideas and concepts revolving around well seven weeks is forty nine year. You know I mean seven times seven is you know and God you know and in all these dispensations God stopped the clock. Yeah. At Jesus, and and now God has restarted the clock again, and there's this one seven-year period left, you know, before the end of, of all things, and um, so you know you have this sort of pre-millennial tribulationist rapture culture that believes that in any moment Jesus is going to come back and take his followers, and then there's going to be seven years of hell on earth. Uh, and then uh, God is going to punish you with a very big stick uh, because you didn't get it right. And uh, and then uh, then Jesus coming back the th- the third time. Um, yeah, and then that's the end of the game. The, the game board's folded up and all the pieces are put away. Uh, Four thousand years, and then there'll be a whole other thing. I mean, so so here's I guess one of the things I really want your readers to consider. All of these ideas are in ancient Jewish literature called apocalyptic writings or apocalypses. And these ideas that we find in the Bible are not unique to the Bible. Mm. They are found in First Enoch, in, in uh, uh, First Ezra. The, there's, there's so... There's so much apocalyptic literature with the same themes. Yeah. The writers of the Bible are drawing from those themes and those ideas 
about how oppression is overcome in a time of great oppression and struggle. Mm -hmm. You know, what do we look to? What do we have faith in? And the faith is in God. If we're in Babylon, you know, and we're suffering in Babylon, you know, how do we carry or maintain faith? If we're suffering under Antiochus Epiphanes, you know, what is, what is going to get us through this? If we're suffering through the temple destroyed, um, the, the second temple in 70 AD, 70 CE, how are we going to, to survive that? I mean, so apocalypses start showing up at distinct yeah. times in history to help the community interpret their experience. Yeah. Um, so I'm arguing that, that what we see is apocalyptic literature and then it's in this uh, manifestations in scripture are not blueprints of the future. Um, these are documents that are written to help a people under stress um, get through with with their faith intact. Yeah, that God is still with them in some way that God will deliver them. Yeah, some people might be surprised to realize how um, fairly recently, you know, dispensationalism was you know thought of and accepted in a you know in a widespread way. Um, it's popped up you know, or similar ideas have popped up throughout, you know, church history here and there. Um, but not like what we know today, but many people would, you know, very much believe that it goes all the way back to the Acts church, you know, um, it's very easy to read these things into the text. And you talk about fun with numbers, the ability for the human mind to interpret things, however they are, you know, however they want to is absolutely, um, well, it's, fascinating but amazing that we can do so um but that apocalyptic mindset has um has like you said has gone back to um you know the early you know early scripture but then these surrounding cultures around them it's not a um christian specific you know thing um and it's also not a christian specific consciousness you know could you talk a little bit more about apocalyptic consciousness, um, you know, as a concept, I guess you can take it any way you want, but just how common, you know, thinking about the end times is. Well, it, you know, because of popular culture, it, it's hard for us not to think about the end times as, you know, as a, as a, as a reality in the way it's getting interpreted. Th those left behind books have indoctrinated so many people. Yep. So let me just give you a concrete example. When people are looking at what's going on in Israel now, um, people who are enamored with rapture culture, they don't give a shit about the Palestinians. Mm. They don't care about the Palestinian Christians. Um, what they care about is the prophecy being fulfilled, and they don't care who dies in the process. They really don't. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure that there might be people listening to this going, no, he's being so unfair. He's, you know, but but. Just go ahead and read John Hagee, um, you know, read how Lindsay still read, uh, 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 oh, who was the guy? Uh, come on, the man left behind, dude, not Jerry, not Jenkins, but oh, I have no idea. Okay, the, the other guy, I'm blanking on his name right now, but but they they have a scenario in their minds of how this is going to go, and how this is going to go in Israel means that. The Palestinians will be destroyed. That Islam, the the Dome of the Rock, will revert uh, back to Jewish hands, mm -hmm. and so anything that can help them get there, 
um, is okay with them. Yeah. So not, I, I mean, I've been in Israel, I've been in Palestine, not all Israelis think the same way that Benjamin Netanyahu does. There are yeah. a lot of Israelis that believe that their future and the future of the Palestinians are tied together, that they belong to one another in a certain sense, that mm-hmm. they belong to the land, not that the land belongs to them. Mm-hmm. But in rapture culture, all of those considerations have to go by the board because a certain set of circumstances have to happen. Um, and look, this is also, and there's a Jewish uh uh, dissenting religious movements that are very much looking forward to the restoration of the temple. Yeah. Uh, and and so Christian money goes into forming them. And occasionally you'll hear of somebody going in and trying to blow up the Dome of the Rock to sort of be God's little helper. Um, so there are concrete ways in which sort of our relationship in, to Israel itself is being run by people who have a kind of rapture culture mentality. Um, and, and if you want a, a fascinating and yet terrifying aspect of this, just uh, look closely at Mike Pence, look closely at Secretary Pompeo, look closely yeah. at some of the Betsy DeVos, some of the people who are in power in government today. Um, there's a, there's a dominionist strain of Christianity that really they've been very, very successful um, at their goals, but but part of the goal for a number of people like John Hagee and others who go over to Israel and they get wined and dined, well, not wined, but they get dined by Benjamin Netanyahu and, yeah. and they get sort of courted by the Israeli state because they realize that these people are going to cultivate people in America so that anything that Israel does um, is by de facto, uh, or excuse me, by in, in fact, um, uh, uh, what God desires or what God wants, because mm-hmm. Israel is a chosen people. So their concrete, their concrete um, results or responses to a kind of apocalyptic imagination that imagines that that Jesus is coming back, and and what I would like for people to do is just step back and ask themselves the question, is this a theological innovation that takes place in the 19th century and now is relatively new and is being used and manipulated by certain people who have political and social agendas that are not necessarily aligned with Christ of the Gospels? Mm. Or, um, you know, and and there's always going to be sincere good-hearted people like I was, maybe like you were, um, who believe that what they're told. And, and what I was told early on was, uh, this is this is a thing. How Lindsay is right. This is going to happen this way. We're living in the end times. And um, the notion of realized eschatology doesn't really sink in so much. Mm-hmm. That, in fact, Jesus has come. Um, the world is different for that coming uh, and that Christ comes again every time that is manifested in the world, the spirit of Christ, the reality of resurrection is manifest in a, in a world in love with its own destruction. Yeah. It's um, it's, it's, you know, you're talking about this rapture culture industry, you know, there's this whole, um, you know, this whole industry pumping money into, you know, some people's pockets, you know, selling, you know, the rapture consciousness 
and there's this love of power and this obsession with power, like you mentioned earlier. Why is that ironic um, in regards to what Revelations is actually talking about and, you know, the themes of Revelation? I'm trying to find the, um, the author of that other book I wanted to talk about, but, oh, where are you, you booger? <laughs> Sorry, I know that that's no, not very good. that's not very scholarly, is it? Booger. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I couldn't find it. Um, okay, I'm sorry. I, I've I've phased on your question. Um, the irony of this obsession with power and authority, um, with what Revelation is actually talking about. Well, okay, right. So, so this is what we were talking about earlier. The God that you create mm-hmm. becomes the God that you worship. So, if the God that you create is a God of power then you want that power always on your side. That that power is never oppositional to you. Yeah. Because because the god that you create is the unassailable god, you know. Mm-hmm. It's it's the social construction, it's the social imaginary as Charles Taylor says of of the god who is always on your side against your enemies. And there's never a thought in all of that that maybe god is is standing with your enemies as well. Um, you know, this is one of the things that can be so powerful about Eucharist as a corrective to this mm. is that if you are at the table, then you have to recognize that brothers and sisters all over the world are at that same table. Now, who are you to enroll in a crusade or a thing that would bring harm or destruction to those other brothers and sisters. Yeah. You are part of a universal community that transcends state boundaries. But those people who are interested in maintaining control through fear, or maintaining control through other means, the apocalypse becomes a useful tool to get people to line up. Yeah. It becomes a tool of control um, to say, okay, so I have, the answers. I know what's going to happen. And if you stay with me, I'll keep you safe. And it's so effective because you can plug and chug anyone you want into those scriptures, into the lines. You know, it's like this person's the Antichrist. You know, so many people have been the Antichrist for our, you know, the past 2000 years. Well, my grandmother thought that Franklin Delano Roosevelt was the Antichrist. (laughs) She thought FDR was the Antichrist. He's a communist bastard. My grandma thought Obama was the Antichrist. So. Sure, because, you know, black. And, um, you know, but I told my grandmother, I said the Antichrist would have never given us the Blue Ridge Parkway. <laughs> so, you know, so, it, you know, no. I mean, and now today, you know, I mean, there are people, I like the statement, there are, there, there are many Antichrists, mm-hmm. you know. So look at the one that you're dealing with at any moment in time and deal with that one, you know, instead of looking for D1. Um, But the Antichrist message is similar, right? I will keep you safe. Yeah. And that is the totalitarian call. Uh, That is the the sort of um, wicked pathos of, of, uh, of fear that says, I alone can save you. Yeah. And, and totalitarianism uh, lurks behind that idea. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in as much as apocalypticism is rooted in fear, fear of the scarcity, fear of the end of the world, fear that you're going to hell. Yeah. Um, it's rooted in a, in a, if it, it's rooted in a demonic call. 
um, I will keep you safe. I, I will take you out of this. You will yeah. not have to go through this. There are people every day in their lives in this world who suffer um, tribulations that we can't even begin to imagine at the hands of state or, or group violence or, uh, you know, and we can't begin to imagine how horrific their lives are. Yeah. And, uh, and to say, well, when Jesus comes, he's going to take us away from all of this is, is, uh, is a betrayal mm-hmm. of incarnation. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, you know, a escapism, a, you know, God's going to keep me safe. I remember, you know, so vividly this, um, you know, this, this event that happened, you know, years ago, you know, I was aware of this group of missionaries, um, <clears throat> and there was a story that was, you know, circulating in, you know, the people that I knew where this missionary was in this van and there was a, you know, a van crash and, you know, there was this whole long Facebook post about how, you know, praising God that, you know, the missionary was saved, that he was safe, you know, no injuries, but unfortunately, you know, someone else died. But there was very little mention of the other person that died. And it was just this, thank God, you know, that he saved us. Thank God that he, you know, protected me, um, you know, in my mission here, you know, keeping us safe. And that really messed me up because I just started to see that kind of mentality all around me, um, you know, in, yeah. Christ- in lots of different Christian cultures, this idea that God's going to protect me because I believe in him. God's going to protect me because I love him. Um, and that just, you know, was so gross to me, that kind of mentality. And like you were saying this, uh, you know, the fears that are wrapped up inextricably, you know, from these things and from this mindset, you know, xenophobia plays in, um, death anxiety plays in us versus them. And they all just kind of turn into this weird, nasty conglomerate. And, and this is precisely the God that needs to die. Yeah. Yeah. So when when radical, I mean, the best radical theologians, and they're terrific, um, when they're sort of digging in on this, that they have, I think, the, the tools to say that's exactly the type of God that needs to die because mm-hmm. that's the God of your projections. That's the God of your Freudian, you know, casting yourself into the world and calling it God with all your all your stuff out there hanging out. Yeah. That's, uh, do you think that that's an inevitability? You know, earlier you're talking about how we, you know, read ourselves into God. Do you think that we kill, we kill God, you know, that's in our image. And then over time we construct another one. And that that's a process that as Christians, as you know, people who, um, are part of the tradition, part of the family, part of the kingdom, that that is really, um, the cost of discipleship constantly having to, you know, kill the God that is in your image and trying to bring yourself back to some kind of depth or ground, you know, like Tillich likes to talk about, or do you think that like the death of God people, we can just, you know, throw it away and, um, you know, and become the, the overmen like Nietzsche, you know, tried to come up with. Yeah. You see the, the, the death of God is not the death of God ontologically. You know, ontologically, we don't know. <laughs> right. You know, God is going to get along very well without us. If if God exists, God is going to get along very well without us. Mm-hmm. That, that said, um, if I didn't think that there was something about the earth and the universe and the cosmos that did not add to the life of God, um, it would be difficult to imagine being on this journey. 
Um, but I think I said earlier, I, I had that moment, which I, I thought the born again moment was the one moment, right? Yeah. And from that, from that time, I have been continually suffering conversion. Well, usually the conversions I suffer is when the God that I've constructed, I realize is, is in, it, it, it does not, um, match the moment that I'm in, that, mm-hmm. that I have missed it somehow um, because I'm unable to be present to the person who's suffering or I'm unable, you know, yeah. to, 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 uh, to even overcome my own feelings about something, you know, yeah. you know, suck it up, be strong, you know. I mean, God never gives you more than you can't handle, right? You know, some people there are things that break them. So, you know, it's, yay, go send your God to them and just watch them break a little more or just shut up about God for a while and sit with them in their pain. Yeah. Um, because that's what they need. Mm. Um, can you, so can you talk more about that, that idea of, um, of incarnation of us immersing ourselves in the world instead of trying to escape it all the time and you know actually leaning into our you know relation with the other instead of trying to um you know withdraw from them in some weird sense of you know sanctity or you know purity yeah so this is what we know okay so purity is a totalitarian agenda too right mm-hmm. you know um you know, much harm has been unleashed in the world because of the, the desire for purity. Right. And uh, Miroslav Volf in his book, Exclusion and Embrace, said something along the lines of um, purity or piety allows an act of, no, purity allows an act of murder to be transmuted into an act of piety. Mm-hmm. Right. So then, you know, you're, you're the worshiping of the idols there. The, mm. the pure, you know, the, the chase for the pure is the worshiping of idols. The immersion into the world is exactly what Bonhoeffer is talking about in letters and papers. He says only by living completely in this world. And he says we should, we should face up to the fact that we live in the world as if God does not exist. Um, and and that, that's the world that we live in. So let's not live in a world where God is going to come along and save us. Um, you know, that does not mean that whatever God is, God is not present. Yeah. And it does not mean that God is entirely helpless, but it means that the movement of the divine in the world can be far more subtle than we think it is. Yeah. Um, and it's not an inbreaking from the external in, it's a movement from the internal out. Um, so, so true holiness, for instance, is not something that that is imposed upon you from the outside. You know, conservatives think that virtue can be created from external pressure on you. And, and if you if you can, you know, take away enough from a person, then they'll they'll be virtuous. Yeah. Um, in a certain sense. Um but there is a there is a spiritual discipline that emerges from the inside of you into the out outward spaces that manifests itself in the life that you live. Um, that may be manifesting something more um, authentic, 
Yeah. I, I hate that word, but I'm just, <laughs> I, I didn't have a better word right at the moment. So, so when we're talking about immersing ourselves into the world, there's also that immersion that, that of faith that says, I, I don't know. There's so much yeah. I don't know. But what I am willing to say is I do know that with Bonhoeffer, um, for me, faith leads me to Golgotha. Um, and that, that God's suffering um, rests at the heart of everything. Suffering is a universal human experience. It transcends context. It transcends um, positionality. Uh, it, you know, those things are important. It transcends intersectionality. Those things are important. Yeah. But at the end of the day, suffering is, is, seems to be the one constant uh, of existence. And if your theology can't address that by its central figure, yeah. Um, then it seems like your theology may need a conversion of its own. Yeah, um, that's something that I have been so um, influenced by um, with William James um, talking about, you know, the sixth soul. And, you know, you get the sense that the sixth soul sees things uh, more inclusively. And he's talking about you know, the, you know, what he calls the monist or the universalist, the idea that everything is God. Well, if everything is God, then suffering is God. And, um, you know, then it's all part of his plan. It's all okay. You know, and going back to the rapture culture, it's like no matter how many people have to die and suffer, it's all part of God's plan and it's okay. And believing in a a God who's willing to do that kind of calculus, um, it affects you as a human being because what you believe affects your actions. It affects the character and the person that you become. Um, and that's something that I, you know, was that I thought of and was reminded of all throughout your, your book on the end times is the idea, the reality that our beliefs, um, have consequences in our actions. They're not just, you know, in our head, they're not just mental. Um, you know, what we believe always has consequences and material effects, and if your belief leads you um, to root for the demise of certain people, you know, in order for your, you know, weird system of, you know, eschatology to work, then, you know, that has effects in your everyday life in other ways. Um, you know, we talked about this love of power and, you know, possibly xenophobia, this us versus them mentality. Um, and so, um, you know, we're, we're starting to reach the time where, you know, we got to go. But could you talk, you know, maybe say a word about the the idea that our beliefs, you know, they have effects in our real lives. They they come out in our in our actions. They have consequences in our real life, um, you know, and, and maybe, you know, how I don't know, maybe say a word um, about where you would steer people towards as far as like the kind of God that we should believe in or, you know, relate to, you know, in regards to everything that we are saying. Yeah. So I wrote this book, Devil's Inc., blog from the basement office, um, and it was uh, the devil's blog. And the overriding conceit of the book is that ideas have material effects. Mm-hmm. And we don't, we, it's often weird to talk about spirit um, and energy because, you know, there's so much, you know, crappy stuff revolving around those words. So I kind of hate to use them, but... Ideas create certain energies 
that have material effects in the world. Yeah. So, for instance, when John Maynard Keyes talks about the animal spirits of, you know, the sort of economic world, he's talking about a way in which the way that people think unleashes a kind of spiritual energy into the world that takes material space. Yeah. It has material effects. So there's an aspect that I don't think we think about enough that the things that we say um, have impact. So, for instance, in America right now, as you see, I don't know that there's any more racism in America than there was. Um, I think Will Smith today on Twitter says it's just being filmed now, right? (laughs) Um, But there does seem to be a material effect of unleashing the spirit of um, anger and hatred. I mean, you, you just see that creeping into the to the society yeah so there's a certain sense in which all of these ideas and concepts they they do acquire a kind of animating power Mm -hmm. uh to to build and construct society in ways that i'm not even sure that we're always conscious of right so you know how often do we find ourselves angry at somebody when 20 years ago or 20 minutes ago, we might not have been angry about them for this thing, right? Um, How does Hitler's Germany emerge? And you can go back and you can start to look at, you know, the way that Hitler played on the economic dissatisfaction of people, the way that he told conservatives that he was going to burn out all of the liberal decadence Mm -hmm. and restore Germany to Christian uh, to a Christian nation. And he does this in the Bonhoeffer book. I have a quote from a speech that Hitler, um, that Hitler says those very words. Um, so there is a certain sense in which, what is it then, it, given that, what is it that you are giving yourself to? And, you know, it's a cliche, but, you know, and, and love is a misused and misunderstood word. But there is a certain sense in which if you have the vision that love at least brings us to the understanding that we belong to one another, that's a whole different space than you don't belong here, get out. Yeah. Um, And so I'm just going to go ahead and take a stab in the dark that if God exists, God's more on one side of that continuum than on the other. Mm. And if you are supporting the other side of the get out, the fear, um, the, the, the harmed other human beings, then I'm just going to go ahead and, and say that that does not seem to be the embodiment of the divine that right. we find in Jesus. No. Yeah, I, uh, I agree 100% with everything you just said. Um, and I also, you know, I, I can't help but see that this, this sense of absolute certainty, you know, to be absolutely certain about something, you know, it lends itself to these things. It lends itself yep. to all the other, you know, um, <laughs> all the other negative aspects, all the, you know, insidious things that we're, we've been talking about. Um, you know, it's like some people would say that, you, no, you can be, you know, certain about something and be harmless, but there's just something about absolute certainty where you're not willing to, you know, give up on something. There's no give and take. It's not a relational aspect or virtue, is it? You know, to be absolutely certain. You can't be absolutely certain about everything in a marriage. You know, that's never going to work. You're going to have to give and take. 
Um, and there does seem to be this, this absence of relationality with these kind of mentalities. Um, yeah. Maybe you can say a word on that. No, I think you said it great. <laughs> okay. Well, we're, you know, we're coming to the end of our time. Um, my last question um, was, you know, writing your, your book on the end times, um, was there something I know you, you know, you experienced the rapture culture and, you know, you've been doing theology and biblical studies for all these years. Was there something that you, um, that you didn't know before, or you changed your mind on through writing the book, um, you know, that changed from before you started? Not really. Um, you know, just more awareness of how apocalyptic literature impacted um, the the ancient world mm. uh, maybe was the most thing. I mean, I, I had some familiarity, but when I started reading uh, some of that and the language directly mirrored the biblical language, um, but mostly it was, you know, I'd, I'd done that work and stuff before and had delved deeply into um, John Nelson Darby when I was teaching and stuff. So does it worry you at all at just how, um, prevalent this kind of apocalyptic fanaticism seems to be in just the, in humankind? Yes, um, it, it, it is. Yeah. And Christianity isn't the only, yeah. In the book, I say that we can't escape the end because we all have one. Yeah. And so we, we can't escape that end, and we're continually, the imagination that we put to what that end looks like. Um, there's a way in which if you apocalyptic imagination actually sort of keeps your personal eschaton at bay, mm-hmm. you know, so, so it's a way of staving off the fear of your own death. Right. Um, well, I, I have had a great time listening to you. Um, I, could do this for a very long time because you know so much and there's so much that you've written about that, you know, is just, you know, great to, you know, to talk about. Um, I, uh, I wanted to, I found out, I was going to ask you about it anyways, but then I found out somewhere that you were, you know, working on some project about the, uh, Anabaptist rebellion in Munsterberg. Um, yeah. And we don't have time to talk about that, but if that ends up ever being written, I would love to have you on to talk about because that's one of my favorite stories out of this. Well, it, it's written. Uh, I've written a novel about it. Um, oh, really? So, I, yeah, I didn't write a historical piece. I wrote a novel, and uh, I can't find an agent. Um, evidently, historical fiction is not a thing these days. So, Well, hey, if that gets uh, published, I'd love to promote it because that's one of my favorite uh stories of history which i don't know what that says about me but um it's a great it's a hell of a story i was in graduate school and and we were studying the anabaptists and and we we were um spending a whole semester on continental reformation and our professor told us the story about the takeover of Munster, and then he said you know told us about how the the ringleaders were executed and hung in the cages and the cages were hung from the steeple of saint lambert's church and then he said they're still there and I said, no, shit, no. And he said, yeah, they, those cages still hang there. So a number of years ago, I was uh, I was living in London for a semester and just hopped the train, went over to Germany, and there they were. And so I thought, somebody's got to write this, but not in a academic way. Yeah. 
So I spent about 15 years researching it. Yeah. You know, Jesus. what was going on on February the 11th at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, so. Well, if that doesn't show you the consequences that our beliefs have, um, I don't know what does. Uh. That was that was some crazy stuff, man. Um, Just well, crazy stuff. Well, thank you so much, Jeffrey, for coming on and talking to me. Um, I will have everything, you know, as far as your books and everything, links to you um, in the show notes. Is there anything you'd like to uh, say to the audience, maybe regarding everything we've been talking about um, before we close? Uh, if I offended you, I hope it was for the right reason. Uh-